Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends and how they define the world around us. Well, welcome to episode 74 here at the department. Um, (laughs) Breaking news, Amanda. Dun, dun, dun. That's not the breaking news noise. Sorry, everyone. Bow, bow, bow. (laughs) Is that a breaking news noise? No, that's an air horn. But I liked it. Did it get you like really amped up? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, now everyone's super excited. um, They're super excited, yeah. (laughs) Everyone, stay calm. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> the, the saddest part is that like it's not the most joyous occasion but prep is back in our collective step that's right amanda i know the the trend you've been waiting for uh i mean guys i don't want to brag but i did go to prep school so i might be an oh, expert on this topic although I think when are. i was in prep school what was cool was to dress like a hippie so oh, i don't that- know very different. <laughs> Very different. Um, well, Preppy Style is making a comeback. I mean, after years of decline. Yes, yeah, seriously. It's, it was kind of interesting to learn, which, uh, but, but also not that uh, um, surprising, just because of all the things that we've been sort of seeing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so stay tuned um, this week as we take a deep dive into the history of the trend and unlock what's on the horizon for this historic and rather dicey uh, I guess trend, but you know this might be actually a two a two parter. So um, stay tuned for the second episode after this one as well. <laughs> Woo! Uh, bow, bow, bow! <laughs> we're like a morning. We're like a morning show now. Like a, like I'm like with shock jocks. You know, I to be like fart sounds. <laughs> so the platform we use, Riverside. I was waiting for a guest last week to like figure some stuff out and i noticed there was this menu where i could like add sound effects Whoa. but none of them were as like there were no fart sounds oh. otherwise i would be terrorizing you with them right now <laughs> i love that <laughs> well before we jump into this of course my weekly reminder here just to you know tell your friends and family about our podcast we you know we're we're getting traction and you know it'd be great to have more people joining us um secondly you know follow us on your preferred streaming service and give us a star rating or review it really totally helps us if you start interacting with these platforms more because it shows that we have a engaged following um and then last you know please make sure to check us out on instagram over at underscore the underscore department um and if you're looking for a bunch of show notes which we will have lots because this was a epic epic research paper um you know please follow us o- over on our website it's the department.world yeah. world. <laughs> How much do all of you hate me now? It's okay. It's it's okay. Like, turning down the volume. <laughs> Justin will mix this down, everybody. Your ears are gonna be fine. <laughs> People are leaving the room. <laughs> 
think I had too much coffee this afternoon, and now it's like, really, I should be like winding down a little bit, but I am ready to go. (laughs) Well, Amanda, what's going on in your world? Well, big news. Those of you who follow on Instagram, you know, let's set the stage, Mm -hmm. set the tone, Mm -hmm. put some backstory here, add some color. I, I mean, you know this, the past couple of months, I have been just like not, not in a great place. Like my job has made me cry many times. I have cried to you. Uh, I've been really stressed out, really tired. Uh, the the weight of Clothes Horse has been really intense. Like, I think I told you this, but we did a series of episodes about laundry, yes. which you would think of as a pretty non-controversial topic. And I received emails from people that were like, it could have been better. Here's 30 <gasps> things you didn't add. And I oh, no. I don't know, just like that kind of stuff, really, when you work really, really hard on something, kind of wears you down. So that combined with my job being really just way too much lately, I've been kind of like, I've been depressed. I've You're been tired. Funk. I've been ang- anxious. Uh-huh. I've been like, what am I going to do next in my life? All the, these things. I had this like crying breakdown where I was like, I'm just going to quit clothes horse because pe- I can't handle it anymore. Yeah. You know, all that. Anyway, uh, so the other day I was at my desk at home uh, doing a bunch of spreadsheets like I do. And Dustin came with a box and I opened it. And what was inside? Oh, my God. It wasn't an air horn, everybody. <laughs> I was like, I want to do an air horn, but it's just going to come out sounding funky. <laughs> bow, bow, bow. It was <laughs> a vintage American Girl doll, and it was Kirsten. Oh, my And God. it was because Dustin heard me talking about it when he was mixing oh. our adulting episodes. And... As he he's an obsessive type of person, like you give him a mission, mm-hmm. uh, he get, he goes deep. He he's like me in that way. I want to get I want to know all the facts, and so he, he became what I would consider uh, the foremost expert on the history of American Girl and how to date the dolls when like and authenticate them. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could I you know we bring him in, he could tell you all about it. But there are things you look for and. Uh, so he got me a pretty cool one from the early 90s. She's really lovely. She does mm. smell like Gain, which Gain is one of those smells, you know, the laundry detergent that I'm not a major fan of, but she's airing out. <laughs> you gotta like rub your scent all over her. I, when I put her on my desk, Brenda immediately got up there and was like, like, what is going on here? What is this? Is this Gain? <laughs> I wonder if it was like red. Wrapped in like those um, those fabric softeners or something. Maybe I could see that. Like, oh, you know, we don't want to get musty, like the basement yeah. or something. But she looks great. Uh, she needs a little. She needs a little hair salon action. But otherwise, mm. she's amazing. And I can't believe that I finally have an American Girl doll. It actually is like better than therapy. You know, I was telling my sister about that because, um, I, as I had mentioned, that I come from an American Girl doll family of um, you know of girls who grew up with our own dolls and Mm -hmm. um she reminded me and i bet dustin's gonna totally geek out on this um that we got one of the first editions so we still have one of the first editions and they've been hand signed by the um by the yeah the owner of the the owner and founder of the company yeah pleasant rowland yeah yes exactly and they have the original faces also Oh, wow. Uh-huh. I know. I was like, oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> I should have known this was coming because a couple of weeks ago, we had an ice storm here in Texas, and we didn't have electricity for a few days, <clears throat> which sucked. Uh, I, that's like 
putting it light, mildly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were living basically in our RV and the driveway, and we moved it out front to the driveway because it was so icy. We didn't want to like fall walking through our yard. And, you know, we could only have heat periodically because there was also a propane shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, our house was already like 40 degrees tops. Like it just immediately. It's like there was end of days. End of days. And so we could t- periodically turn on the generator just to charge our phones and computers. Oh, my gosh. So. I noticed that Dustin was talking an awful lot about American Girl dolls while we were doing that. <laughs> you weren't like cued, cued at, at his end game? I just was like, I guess we're just trying to make the best of this situation. <laughs> By talking about things that we might find comfort in. <laughs> I was like, man, I should really go in the house real quick and, you know, learn a lot about like 70s vans or something so that I can also comfort him. <laughs> oh, that is so cute, though. I, I, and so have you taken her with you everywhere? I mean, I would love to. Like, I've got a plan for this. I thought about taking her to the office because um, now my my employer is requiring us to work in the office three days a week, which is like the biggest life adjustment, let me tell you, after like years of being at my house all the time. Um, even like lunch is a complicated thing. Uh, I might take her in tomorrow just to see, you know, like how how it feels to take my doll to work. I was trying to imagine like once a week I have to go to this executive meeting for our parent company and we it's like the classic like huge table, you know, long table in the in the boardroom. You know, it's the boardroom, right? Imagine me showing up. I'm already like definitely uh an outsider. The, the company weirdo. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um and I could just come in there with my American girl doll. Maybe, just sit maybe there. they'll change their policy. <laughs> they'll be, they'll like, be like, you know what? Why don't you guys just stay home? I'll just be like, I'm having a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Uh so I have my doll with me. <laughs> Um, anyway yeah so I not that like you know we should get tons of happiness from material possessions there are plenty of other ways to be happy that don't involve stuff but I gotta say there's something about having this American Girl doll that makes me feel like my inner child feels so so much better that is so sweet I saw your post and it was a really it was a really great post um you know, about kind of the lack that you had in your life and really how this has helped you in a way that you never, ever would have ever imagined. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah. it was kind of like we were talking about on the Cadulting episode. Totally. And since that, those episodes came out, you know, I've been talking about Cadulting with my team at work, other people mm-hmm. I run into, vendors, because, you know, this is something that is going to be important for my day job in terms of like where we go from like a, product perspective and everybody I talk to who is like I identify with this I'm a part of this we're talking like professional adult people like us are like you know what I find is it helps me process my childhood and like sort of reclaim the narrative yes exactly I I love that I also have all all of a sudden, all these Lego lovers are coming out of the woodwork in my life, and I just like love listening yes. to them talk about it. It's so uh-huh. interesting. I mean, it's they're almost like puzzles. You know, it looks yeah. like it's like a three D puzzle. It's very I think cool. It's, it's probably good for your brain. Yeah, I you know, bet. I so I think we should all be doing stuff every day for our brains, no matter how old we are, because 
you know, like we we are used to, for the first part of our lives, jamming new information in there every day when we go to school. And then we go to work, and maybe when we first start a job, we're jamming a lot of new stuff in there. But then, you know, you coast after a while to a certain extent. And so for me, like the way I really challenge my brain is I, you know, I study languages. And so I usually study Japanese for one to two hours per day. Literally, guys, I don't know how Holy, I, I how manage it. How do you do that with a podcast, two podcasts, I know, I know. a full-time job, a, a little family, literally a herd of cats? <laughs> Heard. It's getting there. Yeah. Um, it, it is hard. I mean, I usually get, I get up early to study in the morning mm-hmm. and then I study again at night and I use a variety of different apps. And I recently just bought a workbook where you read stories and then have to answer questions mm-hmm. entirely in Japanese. Um, so right now my big focus is like sentence structure because it's really hard. But I feel like when I'm doing it, I'm like, oh, my God, my brain is working harder than it works in any other thing I do. And I feel like Putting together Lego is probably a similar experience if mm-hmm. that's not what you do all day. You know, uh, others, uh, some of you listening to this might find a lot of challenge and, and brain expansion and getting into spreadsheets, but that's what I yeah, do all true. day. So that's mm-hmm. not challenging to me anymore. Anyway, uh, I, I, I'm glad that we did those adulting episodes because I feel like I've been learning so much about me other too. people and around me. I see me. it everywhere, too. Yeah, it's like once you, it's mm-hmm. so many things that we talk about here. Now I'm going to be thinking about prep all the time now, which you you are. When you told me we were doing this episode, I was like, oh my God, I suddenly I have a long list of evidence. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I know. And I, I mean, I kept pulling threads and I was like, oh my God, if I don't stop, First of all, I mean, this was, I, I, I couldn't, I, maybe 15 hours of work and research, even though- I believe it. Yeah, you, it's crazy because you're just, you're going down one rabbit hole. I mean, this is probably one of the longest, um, one of the longest, like, existing trends, you know, within at least the fashion industry um, that, you know, we can recount that has come back over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, and it is really interesting that you did speak about reclaiming your narrative because we're going to be talking a little bit about that Ooh. because you know prep def- definitely has a um, uh, <laughs> an, an elitist um, alignment that you know is not surprising to anyone here and about you know and there's a lot of um, kind of history either you know in the 60s but also as we go into the future of like how um, you know people particularly POC are you know reclaiming this trend that they had originally been wearing, but had they'd been like written out of. Um, so it's interesting. So yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Should I, ju- should I dive in? Yeah, let's get into it. Cause there's a lot to cover. There is exactly. Um, and yeah, we will be breaking this up into two episodes. So um, <laughs> yeah, we apologize for that. It just, you know, it, this will definitely end up being, you know, a very long episode if we don't do that. So yeah. And you don't want that. You need a nah. break. You need to live your life. You need to look on eBay for American girl dolls. You know, we like want to make exactly. sure you have time for that. Got to DM Dustin about all the juicy details about, um, you know, how to figure out which is a 90s American Girl doll and which one's an 80s. <laughs> I know. Don't get him started. Don't, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, as, as mentioned at the top of the episode, in a shocking twist of events, Preppy is making a ferocious comeback. So driven by both trend and aesthetic and a highly creative, subversive mindset, we're starting to see Prep really taking over um, pretty much all facets of fashion, which is actually very surprising. I kind of thought it was like a like dead and buried and we wouldn't be seeing it for a while, but um, that's not the case. Yeah. Um, so we have been slowly actually making our way back 
to this preppy conversation, whether we really, really knew it or not. I mean, you brought it up multiple times, um, you know, even talking about just like prep wear, um, mm-hmm. but like preppy as like a defining aesthetic um, has been part of our conversation really over the, fl- the last few years, even, um, especially as, as we have witnessed different aesthetics embracing, you know, a bunch of different parts of the preppy sensibility. You know, if you remember mm-hmm. in 2020 and 2021, we had dark academia mm-hmm. and that had, a, you know, really, you know, obvious nods to a rom- romanticized Ivy League attire with the tweeds and the chunky knits and the Oxford shoes and the crisp button ups. Um, and of course, as we ma- made our way into 2022 and 2023, you know, some of those preppy themes have become more and more noticeable <laughs> yeah. and have been taking over as sort of, you know, larger trends. You know, you could argue that Coastal Grandmother has, you know, themes in a, in a preppy look, um, Old Money, Mall Girl, even Plaza, Curl, Plaza Core are all taking cues from this renowned style. So one of the most notable indicators of this trend, um, or that the trend is facing a strong comeback, um, has its stars, I guess, aligned with the turnaround over at J. Crew. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? I was reading about that. And I was like, wow. I really want to dig dig into this. <laughs> it's been bad news there for a long time. Yeah. I feel like it's like for many of us working in the industry, J. Crew is just like. Oh, uh, they're still around. Like that's right. what we say. I'm not paying attention. I'm not yeah. paying attention at all. Yeah. Wow. So it is surprising to start seeing articles coming out about this turnaround and how this turnaround is actually happening and sales numbers and figures. And you're just like, what? Exactly. J. Crew. <laughs> like I, I've completely forgot, forgot about them. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, not really, obviously. And and I find them extremely fascinating um, because you know, as you know, in in the '90s. And really early aughts, I, I bought J. Crew from the catalog, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it was, that was like, those sweaters were like the best things ever. They're 90s sweaters. They were super yeah. chunky. And their coats, they had these beautiful coats. And it was just such a great product. And it, it had so much longevity. It was so high quality back in uh, those it was, times. Even just if you bought like a tank top. I used yeah. to go in there and buy, whenever they would have a sale, I would get black camis. Like they just had mm-hmm. plain black camis. With lace trim, which I sounds like such old news, but at that point, you couldn't find that kind of stuff, and no, they never you faded, and there they never no pilled. Apparel. Exactly, they never pilled. They lasted forever. I mean, like J. Crew was synonymous with quality. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I mean for a while until it wasn't. You know, until it wasn't like many many brands at this point. Yeah. Um. So now, if you do not recall, because I actually I kind of forgot about this, but um. J. Crew filed for bankruptcy as in the early days of the pandemic, and it was like one of the first dominoes to fall. Um, and the nail in the coffin really came from the lost sales after having to close its doors during that pandemic time. Um, but they had been reporting just being plagued with a series of missteps and consumer shifts. Uh, originally, you remember as we were just saying, they were the darling of the industry for just many years and piggybacking not just off of the preppy trend, but actually building their own momentum by redefining it themselves right back in the aughts. And that was right around that time I was like off of the Jake wagon. But um, 
they were even worn consistently by the former first lady, Michelle Obama. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. I feel like they actually were kind of in a lull. And I believe Mm -hmm. this is when they brought in Jenna Lyons. Am I remembering the right name here? You, You are, yeah. Yeah, and I think... She rejuvenated the brand, which I'm sure you're going to talk about. But that mm-hmm. was when, that was in the Michelle Obama era. Like yes. they're they're linked in terms of Michelle they Obama are. suddenly having more interest in wearing J. Crew. And what a smart! Yes. I'm not saying it was intentional, but it had to be at least a little bit. What a great thing to happen for J. Yeah. Crew for Michelle Obama to be wearing their clothing. And and having a first lady wearing product, like a brand that's actually accessible and something that you can literally just go and actually buy. Yeah. That's not, you know, designer or couture. Uh, yeah. Um, it definitely, it, it, it had an, an, a very interesting narrative around that. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, during the Audis, which was, you know, like the mid Audis, like the 2015 time, mm-hmm. um, they began to really have cash flow issues and they began to get, be, began to stumble um and back in 2017 then then CEO Mickey Drexler even admitted to the Wall Street Journal that their this is what he claims cuz i feel like there might be some other reasons but their biggest mistake was to raise prices which mm. sent the company's sales into years long decline because they made those moves in a time when the consumer was increasingly cost conscious, <laughs> like the Great Recession. <laughs> That's when they did it. So back in 2008, Amanda, this was right mm-hmm. when Jenna Lyons that you were talking about, that's when she was brought on um, and was kind of diversifying the selection and, you know, brightening it up. Um Right at the height of the Great Recession, 2008, the brand debuted their premium label, which is like the downfall of everyone. Um, and they called it J. Crew Collection. And that they offered these products that were at a designer level price point, like a $6,000 jacket and a $1,200 dress, which they eventually had to sell at 70% oh, it makes off. my head hurt. It's giving me uh-huh. nasty gal energy. It's it giving is. me luxury. It is g- super luxury. It's like, <laughs> let's just bring in high design. Let's bring in, you know, $800 shoes and let's just completely alienate our customer. How about that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I know you're going to go into this. Have them be not like staple pieces. No, like, exactly. Like, like J. Crew is the place where, like, if you wanted, like a suit, like a, a work, not, you know, like for women, and they had, like a, they a were suit. known for their suiting. Right. Excellent. Particularly for men, too. Or a nice button up mm-hmm. or just a dress that you could wear to work for work a million stuff. different things. Yeah, yeah, it was great for work clothes. So to be like, now here's some like $1,200 silver yeah. ballet flats with it's a like huge a flower. Yeah. Something or other that's, it's, you know, it, 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 you can't even wash it. Oh, um, yeah, so silly. Yeah. So talk about not reading the room. Um, (laughs) but you know as so many people try to do you know particularly people when they have kind of commodity and you know um fast fashion and and lower price points you know they they want to be seen as something you know Uh, bigger than they are which and i've seen it literally over and over over and over and over again again. the worst just don't do it. Don't do it. I mean, ultimately, do there are a lot of reasons why Nasty Gal went bankrupt, but a big part of it was this direction Huge. to go into fuxury, which yeah. really, don't ask me what fuxury meant. They had it written in chalk in the lunchroom, and whenever we'd meet with vendors in there, they'd be like, what is fuxury? And I'd be like, I don't know. 
we went to a two-hour meeting it was where the ceo just luxury right yeah but it was mm-hmm. it, it still didn't make sense because it wasn't saying it was like <laughs> anti-luxury it was like no it is luxury but a new version of it i guess I don't, it, was, anyway. it probably came out after like a multiple bottles of champagne. Oh, I just I don't think you worked there yet. This was right before you started. We had to have luxury training with the CEO. Yes. And she brings this in there and there's a deck. So I'm like, oh, this is good. This is already going better than most meetings <laughs> at Astigal. Like there's a deck. So therefore there's an agenda. And then it's just her reminiscing about different times in her life and talking about all the good times oh, she has God. being rich. And <laughs> I was just like... Okay, but like, what is luxury? <laughs> but what I know luxury is, it in my experience, is the fastest way to run your business into the ground. It's true. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, Mickey Drexler admits, um, this is a quote uh, from uh, this Wall Street Journal article. He says, oh, "We became a little too elitist in our attitude." We gave a perception of being a higher price company than we were in our catalog online and in our general presentation. Very big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad that they admit it because I, I have a feeling that not everyone would want to admit that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, their point of view also started to lean like really heavily towards this fashion forward customer. It was like something that they really wanted to achieve as opposed to, you know, obviously fashion forward customers are, you know, that's a fun customer. But when you're, when you're appealing to a more mass, you know, um, customer base, you're going to make a lot more money. I'm just going to say that. So um, it alienated their core customer who actually did start to look elsewhere for this clean classic look that that really resonated with that. Like you said, they could wear to work. Um, and I'm actually going to touch on this a little bit later in the podcast because I'm going to do a circle back okay. um, to J. Crew. Um, but anyway, um, so they then pivoted again in 2017 to try to right size the business by then, you know, lowering their prices to be more democratic and approachable, which just ultimately couldn't save them. Um, and of course, in true Garmento fashion, you know how much I love talking about Garmentos. They're like this insane species of um, old men that have been in the um, the fashion industry since like the 60s and 70s. And they have this very antiquated um, idea of how to run things because they were successful back in the 70s and 80s, you know. Um, so in true Garmento fashion, Drexler also admitted that he underestimated how tech would upend the retail landscape. Oh, my God. I mean, look around. It wasn't like 2005. <sighs> yeah, this is so classic to me. Classic. <laughs> Both of them. Both of those things are classic. You get a Garmento. And then you, you then you you try to become a designer uh, a designer brand once again bringing back nasty gal I don't mm-hmm. know if you were in this meeting it was one of those Monday meetings that would go on for oh, one hundred years horrid. where sometimes we would get yelled at it was always in Mean Girls mm-hmm. which was the name of the biggest the boardroom basically there and our CEO who I would say was a Garmento just with more expensive clothes said. You're not going to believe this, but people buy things using their phones now. And I think that we need to do that. And I I was just like... That's like 2016, 15? Something like 2015, yeah. yeah. And I was just like, I literally just ordered cat food on my phone five minutes ago. Like, how is this person running our business for young yeah. people? 
was uh, wild. Exactly. I mean, yeah. same same thing with J. Crew. I mean, you know, their their demographic is like it starts in the twenties, and it's you know like. <laughs> <laughs> um. So in twenty two thousand seventeen, he ended up stepping down as the CEO from the struggling brand, and then in two thousand nineteen, he ended up giving up his seat on the board of directors. So apparently, in two thousand eighteen, this was like right before he stepped down. As the on the board of directors, um, so 2018 on the Black Friday weekend, their website crashed, losing them potentially around seven hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars in sales and pissing <sighs> off over three hundred thousand customers. And then it continued to glitch through the whole rest of the holiday season. So you can imagine how damaging that was um, to the brand and to their sales. I mean, and you know to I guess to their, hmm, I don't know, credit, but um, there were other brands at this very same time run by Garmentos that were experiencing the exact same thing, where they just weren't prepared for the traffic and to be able to withstand so much traffic. Um, So it really kind of clearly echoes the lack of priority that their digital presence was given which we all know is super damaging. And I mean, you know, Mickey is considered a visionary in the industry and he has reportedly done so many incredible things. Um, I've never actually met the guy, but I have worked with his contemporary at another preppy fashion house, the U.S. Polo Association. Ooh, Um, prestige. Luxury. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, house, the house, I'm using that obviously very liberally. Um, but, you know, this really speaks to that shift in the industry, really favoring innovation and technology over this like, historically outdated merchant driven strategy. I and that's mean, what these people are they're merchants. It's time and time again. Mm-hmm. I have seen this at so many jobs. Some companies I worked for were really tech-led, and those were the e-commerce brands, and they were, for the most part, pretty successful. But all of the traditional retailers, just it was like product first. I mean, you know, even yeah. at Nasty Gal, it was like, if sales weren't there, it was our fault as merchants. And it's like, no, like it's a million other things. It's our website and that we don't pay for Google search and, you know, we don't have SEO, like every, it was yeah. so much bigger than that, but it always comes back. It's like you bought the, the wrong thing. So speaking of J. Crew and Garmentos uh-huh. and merch driven people, I actually worked with Mickey Drexler's replacement at Urban Outfitters. Um, it's a guy named Jim Brett and he was the GMM when I was working and buying at Urban Outfitters and he, uh, GMM for those of the you who don't work dish. in She's given us yeah, the, I'm dish, giving you the dish, guys. So GMM is like the head of buying, you know? Uh, uh-huh. You get an office. You're an executive for the for the brand. And I want to say that he only worked with us for like a year maybe. Uh, and his background was not in clothing. His background was in like home goods. I can't remember where he came from before. But when he left, he went to West Elm where he worked for quite a while. And I think really did have a lot of success at West Elm. The thing about Jim Brett is he is just the classic, humiliates you at work, screams at you, flies off the handle. It's just like not, it's this old school version of what it is to manage, you know, that like we, like I hope is on its way out the door. Like I, I think back to that time whenever I'm like having conversations with my team about like behavior at work and, you know, anxiety and all these other things, I always come back to saying, like, listen, I began my career in a place in which it was acceptable to yell at people at work and humiliate mm-hmm. them and frighten yes. them. And none of those feelings have any place in the office. If 
I, I can't believe that there are people who think it's okay to yell at people at work. Like, take it home. Take it home. Agreed. I've been yelled at so many times. Right. And Jim Brett was one of those people. So one time I was in a meeting with him and my boss, and I was just showing him some the buys for the next few months. It was specifically scarves. So I have a whole rolling. This is like the scarf era, everyone. It's a big yeah. business. That's huge business. <laughs> and it's one of the categories I bought uh-huh. in addition to others. But scarves were like really selling at that point. And he, I had the rolling rock of scarves in there and it seemed like it was going really well. And then he just flew off the handle and started screaming at me. And to this day, I don't know why. And he threw, he kind of like took the rolling rack and shoved it against me Whoa. and like hit me. And I like the rolling rack fell over and hangers flew up and what? like hit me in the face and stuff. And, you know, then he just left. And my boss was like, well, next time you should try not to upset Jim. And I was <gasps> like, I don't know why I upset him. Um, and he oh. was like that kind of guy. I, I've i told this story on Closed Worship before, I think, about how when the recession hit, when 2008, things got grim, uh, the company came up with this plan to, you know, be more, be as profitable or possibly more profitable while doing less sales, which is, you know, s- makes sense, right? Because um, so they could still pay shareholders without, like, having to hit sales numbers that just weren't going to happen. And so in order to get there, you have to lower the price of everything. I mean, among other things, right? But the cost of goods needs to come exactly, down. So yeah. we he pulled us all into a meeting and he was like, you all... We're going to go back to your desks and you're going to call every single vendor you have on order and you're going to ask them for a blanket 15% discount off of everything you have on order. And if I hear you are not on the phone, you're fired. And so we all go back to our offices and first our desks. And first off, we're like, and who talks on the phone? This is already like really (laughs) weird. So I'm calling all my vendors are like, why are you calling me? What is going on? Oh, my God. Like, are you guys going out of business? And I'm like, no, I just need a 15% discount. Everybody was like, but you already like you already got the lowest price you could get. And I would be like, well, basically, like, if we're going to buy from you again in the future, I need a 15% discount. People were crying. People were like, I can't. My daughter's getting married. How am I going to afford the wedding and all this stuff? And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. And I actually got through all my calls really fast, I think, because I was like, I got to get this done. This is so terrible. Yeah, exactly. Rip uh, the Band-Aid. He, I would hear him periodically go up to people's desks and scream at them because they weren't actively on the phone. And I sat outside his office, so I had to pretend to be on the phone for the rest of the day. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was it was ridiculous. Anyway, so he, he went to West Elm, where I think he had a lot of success, but then he went to uh, J. Crew, And I'll just tell you, my experience working with him at Urban Outfitters and, and other merchants as well in that org had the same opinion was that like while he he is good at housewares and home goods in general not not a great eye for apparel and accessories especially in the women's world but in right. in general and so he would force us into buying a lot of stuff that turned into a markdown liability like the story i tell uh interviewers when they're like the classic question like what's the biggest mistake you've made in your career and you've learned from was when I'm like, well, Jim Brett made me buy 10,000 units of straw fedora when I knew the trend was over. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I don't say Jim Brett, but it's like in my mind. So anyway, so then he went on to J. Crew, And when I heard he was at J. Crew now, I was a little surprised because I was like, it seems like he did a really good job at West Elm. It makes sense with like what his wheelhouse is. It's hard for me to imagine him at J. Crew, And mm-hmm. wouldn't you know, he okay. started in July of 2017. And 17 months later, 
in November, about a week before that Black Friday, when their website went down. Oh, my God. He stepped down. No and way. So I, I mean, he did some good things for the company. Like he brought in extended sizing, which I think was really smart. But he also, if you talk to people who worked there, uh, he got really focused on deals, deals, deals. So like really yeah. bringing down the cost. They started selling their mercantile collection on Amazon, which was probably brand damaging. There were constantly like sales and things were getting cheaper and cheaper in order to make that profitable. The quality had to go down. And like J. Crew is a place you go for quality and mm-hmm. customers were not happy. Now, he was able to reach a point where for that most recent quarter before he stepped down, he got their sales to be a 1% comp over the previous year, which means 1% higher sales than mm-hmm. the previous year. To me, that's just stopping the bleeding. I wouldn't look at that and say like, wow, this is like some phenomenal success in any level, right? I'd have to see at least a 10% increase to be like, oh, the business is really turning around. Yeah, but what was like the margin? Oh, on yeah, that? it was probably, they were, yeah, exactly. If, if he was just discounting everything, it sounds like, like they probably, yeah, sure, it looks good on paper, but really, they're just hemorrhaging money at the margin level. Well, this is what he announced in in a public statement when he stepped down. He said, returning J. Crew to its iconic status required reinventing the brand to reflect the American America of today with a more expansive, more inclusive fashion concept. However, despite the recent brand relaunch already showing positive results, the board and I were unable to bridge our beliefs on how to con- continue to evolve all the aspects of the company. I mean, it sounds like he wanted to turn it into Old Navy. I think so, too. So I have one more thing to add on that was that at that point, I'd started my job that I had right before the pandemic, the one that I got laid off from, which was a rental concept. And my boss there came from J. Crew, where she had worked almost her entire career. And you have so much insider info. I know. On a place I've never worked I'm or had so interest glad. in working. Yeah, I know. So <laughs> she, she came from there. She'd worked there like 15 years or maybe 20. Um, and she told me that people were like partying when Jim stepped down because he was continuing that really bad behavior. Bully. At, yeah, bullying. Bully. And people thought he didn't know anything about clothing. He made a lot of bad decisions. He wanted things to be cheaper and cheaper. Um, there are lots of screaming and like people who had been there for years and years and years quit because they were like, I can't take this anymore. Mm-hmm. And so it was definitely a very acrimonious split from J. Crew. Um, but you know, probably like, well, I know people who were still working there were like, oh my God, maybe now J- there's some hope to save J. Crew at this point. So that's what I know about it. Um, I think it really speaks to a lot of things here, swinging that pendulum from like, let's be super expensive to super mm-hmm. cheap, which I've also seen play out. We tried that at Nasty Gal, remember after Fugsury mm-hmm. was failing. Um, <laughs> then- yeah, like, they're like, okay, now we have to get all the, the cost of everything down to under $100. <laughs> Right, it's like it, it, and as cheap and uh, um, and low quality as humanly possible. Oh my god, I keep thinking of that time that our CEO went down to the apparel mart <laughs> and to hot and delicious. I'm sorry, no, hot and delicious. That was the vendor's name. The clothes literally came with that label sewed into it, and she came back with all of these samples of faux suede, which is basically. Halloween costume felt and wanted me to buy it all. And I was like, I just, 
It's, it's oh so ugly. So I it's had so to buy trashy. it because she like, kept harassing me about it. And like everything got marked down to like $5 because it was so terrible. Um, but like that, I, I think that's a great example. Even, you know, our leadership at Nasty Gal really not being in that space because we had so many people who came from Lululemon and Jimboree and they didn't understand millennials and they didn't mm-hmm. understand millennial branding and brand loyalty or anything like that, right? So they just couldn't, they couldn't hit it. And they didn't want to listen to what we had to say because these were also people who would yell at you and, uh, you know, humiliate you at work as well, as you know. Um, and so I think that, you know, Jim coming in to J. Crew, he was like, oh, well, now we're just going to go super cheap. That's what I know. But he didn't really have a great eye for product. And I'm sure he was also the kind of person who's like, it's the product, it's the product, right? But it's like, no, it's so much more than that. Like, what was J. Crew's social media like? Apparently their yeah. website was crap. Uh, you know, what kind of partnerships were they doing with influencers and other, especially exactly. in 2017? How are you building, building the brand narrative? Yeah, the- I, I find that Garmentos never think about brand and branding they're just and like marketing. product. Yeah, yeah. And tech and just literally all of the, the pieces that go to that puzzle. Yeah, it's so much bigger. And I think that people think I can be, I'm a good merchant. I can be a CEO. And it's like, no, yeah. that's like 1% of your job. But unfortunately, that's where those people always end up hanging out. And they're just like harassing buyers when they it's should true. be like harassing the tech department to get like a better website and, you know, stuff like that. So I have worked so many places like that where the CEO was probably a jerk uh, mm-hmm. who may have just a little bit failed upwards because they had like CEO personality, right? And who didn't really want to manage the whole business, just wanted to think about product because that's like exactly. the, the fun part, right? And what well, was the part that they were also experienced and used to because it, they came from the, you know, years and years ago when there wasn't like social media presence and there wasn't a websites and it really it really did rely on people coming through the doors and having Mm -hmm. you know a a merchandise forward strategy but it completely changed Uh, you know all a lot of these garmentos still to this day hold power in these organizations with these outdated models Mm -hmm. and lack of any tech literacy i'm talking to the point of not knowing how to find something on a google map or downloading a PDF, you know, and it just endangers the opportunities for growth because, you know, from my experience, they consider their experience from the 80s as the only reasonable reference point. Oh, totally. I remember the guy who was like the CFO at Nasty Gal, who was a real piece of work. Oh. Him, he, him saying in a meeting once that like, he basically wanted to take away our calculators and spreadsheets so we could learn how to really do the work without tools. And why? I was like, why would we do what is that? Wrong with I know. You? Like, what do you want me to get out of fax machine right now? It was so weird. Like, I it's just like they're like, oh, the actually, technology makes you lazy. And I'm like, no. I was actually I actually was threatened the exact same thing with this CEO who was uh, you know, Mickey Drexler's counterpart one time at Bloomingdale's, and he was just like, I used to I would memorize all my numbers and I used to use an abacus and like just all this shit. And Shut like, the front door. No one was using an abacus. <laughs> That he told me that no way he told oh my god and he was he was just like you know it was an old school way of, of buying things and you know it was just a completely different structure and method as things are done now um yeah yeah i mean most of these people like literally should be retired you're like you literally are making so much money and you're so out of touch just go retire. relax i know go if i had that gold. kind of money 
I would be retired right now. Yeah, just do us all a favor so we could, because you know, those people of power are just going to stay in power. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. I mean, I'm sure that, that that actually probably transcends many different, Garmentos are probably existing in many different um, industries. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm sure. Um, so now in regards to like the actually uncontrollable elements of the market during this sort of decline, you know, Jake Crew over the years um, had also needed to compete with both fast fashion that was just bl- like going gangbusters mm-hmm. in those years leading up to the pandemic, as well as to the general and swift decline of the preppy look, which really took a toll on retaining its customer base um, if they weren't already totally alienated um, by the premium or fashion forward direction to begin with. So well, it was also the era of like festival boho. You know, it's so many different trends. Yeah, it's just it's hard. for. I think that if J. Crew had stuck with like their classics, they would have had that built in customer forever because people need nice work clothes. Not people like you and me. We we dress like crazy people to go to work. But like but the most people in the world need those clothes. But instead they were like, let's try this and let's try this and let's throw this at the wall and let's do kids now. I remember they like they started the Mm -hmm. kids brand and, and it's just like, whoa, 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 like go back to what you know. You will never lose that customer, no matter mm-hmm. what the trends are. Yeah, um, and I actually will be talking about that, like I said, in in a little bit later. But because um, I just for some reason just can't stop talking about J. Crew because <laughs> I've never really done like an anthropological uh, <laughs> deep dive into what you know what it meant to be J. Crew, and um, so I find I actually find it pretty fascinating to kind of to kind of take a look at the business. Um, uh, so, um, since the bankruptcy, um, the company actually changed hands, and they turned over their whole C-suite team, or at least partially the C-suite team, uh, and brought in, in to resuscitate J. Crew uh, with some brand new members, giving them that tough task to quote put them back on the map again. <laughs> Oh, Which means no. they've totally they and they re, they realize that they've fallen off. They're like we're the map. not even on the map. We're not even on the map. We're we are so far off the map. We're like <laughs> we're in the index section. Um, <laughs> so they brought in a new CEO, Libby Waddle. I hopefully I'm not butchering, butchering her um, her name, uh, which is wonderful. A woman as a CEO, God help you, thank you. Um, and she had overseen Madewell's epic growth. Uh, as well as new men's creative director, Brandon Babenzian, um, who I hope I also did not uh, butcher his <laughs> name. Um, I'm not the best with names, and I probably should have just YouTubed watching people talk about them. But I did not because I was so busy reading about the history of Jakku. Um, so hailing from he. Okay, so Brandon was hailing from the mega streetwear brand Supreme. Wow. Huge. Wow. Huge. So he came in for men's. He had his own line also called Noah. I mean, this is like a massive, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, Grailed is just shaking. You know, mm-hmm. it's like everyone is going crazy because this the person that literally worked for Supreme for like 10 years is coming in to 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 run the men's department. And then um to target the women's division, they brought in a new a veteran of J. Crew, Olympia Gayot to oversee creative for women's and kids. 
Um, so naturally, Babenzian and Gayot are influencers, mm-hmm. and they're considered style visionaries themselves with huge social followings. So that really does help with their social status and their street cred. Um, and they, you know, they have a really obvious point of view to their style and that the way that they approach this preppy look and how they, they pl- or really the American look, which is really what mm-hmm. J. Crew is known for. Totally. Um, so the intention right now is to make J. Crew iconic again, you know, lean back into the nostalgia of the original brand identity and embrace, shockingly, Quality again. <laughs> There's that <laughs> word. Um, so they've been adding more high end fabrics, and you know, one of the fun things about learning about preppy and the, the prep and Ivy League is that you know, it it was originally all about these natural high end fabrics, and they were they were much more cost, um, oh, costly, more expensive, um, and of course, you know, in the past ten, you know, twenty years. Because of fast fashion and like the, the the demand for cheaper and cheaper things, those high end fabrics tended to get kind of put into the background. And of course, you know, you see like Everlane or all these different places. They're like, we've got cashmere for like five dollars, you know? Yeah. So you know, it's it's hard to compete with that. Um, but they're bringing in those high end fabrics again, which is really core to not just the brand but to the trend itself, or not even trend the. Um, the style itself, um, and then dipping into those archives, the J. Crew archives, which so I would love to see. Yeah, so smart. And breathe classic life back into this actually classic brand, right in time for the resurgence of the trend, you know, mm-hmm. um, preppy, which is like happening now. So Business Insider is really optimistic. Um, And it seems like a lot of people are too. So let's just see what happens in this new year. It does look like they are embracing resale um, to be even more relevant. I am so curious what Mickey Drexler would have ever thought of that. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting. I just had a conversation with with an upcoming close horse guest last night. And we were talking about how luxury specifically is doing everything it can to stop resale. Right, because oh, they need wow. to like hold yeah. on to every bit of market share. Like they mm-hmm. can't they can't lose sales to people buying things secondhand. And I feel like Mickey Drexler would have the same view on it. Mm-hmm. That's just like so old school, right? They're like, if we have any extra inventory, just burn it. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. Oh my god. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Totally. Oh, it's just a waste. Um, so I did actually peek at the numbers because um, I'm always curious when people are talking about a turnaround. I'm like, well, what does that even I mean? I know, right? Um, but they are tracking slightly higher in 2022 than they did in 2021, which is actually a big deal because a lot of sales numbers were struggling for a lot of different brands yeah. during in that time period. So it is a sign in their favor that they are doing something right and that trend pendulum is likely swinging in their direction and kind of helping shove those numbers along. Um, uh, so, you know, like I said, I'm going to return to J. Crew again, kind of in the context of the history behind the trend and the demise, um, of recent. So, um, I'm going to, as Amanda likes to say, put a pin in it for now <laughs> and move on. Okay. I love that. Bow, bow, I love that bow. term. Um, <laughs> oh God, I'm so glad that you're doing that now, Amanda. I'm just so glad that that's part of your your um, your noise. I just think that you've embraced. I think that it like really spices things up around here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, okay. Well, so before we take a look at preppy, and sometimes it's referred to as Ivy style, um, obviously it's kind of core offshoot is Amer- Americana. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, before we look at that, this trend in the now and in the future, like let's look back at the evolution of the trend. And this is actually where I'm going to be kind of digging in for the long haul because it is, there's so much behind it and it is so fascinating. Um, but I really wanted to see where it came from and kind of what the deal was with this whole trend. And I was really surprised by how how much there was. And I, have, I wasn't able to tell unpack everything here. So, you know, uh, I'm sure people will be like, well, what about this part? I what mean, about this, part? this could be like a whole season of a podcast be. because there's so much involved. And, you know, in addition to like the aesthetic trends aspect of it, there's also the racial aspect of it, the economic Mm -hmm. aspect of it, the gender aspect of it. So it's, we're not going to get on everything here. We'd have to do like 20 episodes. Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, we can always, if if there's a, there's a demand to do an episode on something specific, we can definitely um, go backwards. Cause I think it's a really, Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting thing to to look at. Um, Anyway, so I won't come to anyone as a surprise here that preppy and like the preppy trend originally came from the 1890s and early 1900s preparatory schools, Ivy Leagues, and other elite American universities that embraced more casual and sporty vibes, uh, with a wardrobe compri- comprised of looks appropriate for both the class and or field, um, because club sports uh, and club sport pastimes were highly encouraged. Um, for this kind of cultural um, demographic, things like golfing, rugby, football, sailing, tennis. Uh, so this aligned perfectly with the birth of the original 20th century American style, like the sport coat, blazer, loafer, Oxford shirt, uh, knit sweaters, and chino pants, and really became the uniform choice in these privileged academic circles that encourage style as a status symbol. So brands like Brooks Brothers and J Press introduced casual wear uh, that be- became synonymous with this cultish style. You know, they, their doors were located literally on the campuses associated with it. Um, and they had premium price points that coincided with that kind of like elite wallets. Um, and really kind of helped build that narrative around the elitism because, you know, it mm-hmm. was not affordable to everybody. No. So by the 1930s, college women were in on it, too. Uh, and once the first pair of denim for women was released in 1934, also known as Ladies Levi's, <laughs> uh, jeans became a major piece of the preppy style. And we really just never looked back. So in the 50s, um, which was another landmark moment for the trend as preppy was iterated on square kids and young college men adopted this preppy aesthetic because it was aspirational and it was associated with the rich and the privileged elite who continued to popularize it. You know, the movie Grease is often referenced when contextualizing it as a style. Mm-hmm. Um with Sandy, like really epitomizing it. Well, Sandy in the beginning, not sexy <laughs> not Sandy. Not later band. Sandy, yeah. Not sexy Sandy, you know. Sexy um, Sandy. <laughs> you know, like they, you know that, that was like, that's the American apparel Sandy. Ooh. We're talking about 
the um you know the square sandy um so tw- you know twin twin sets plaids and argyle grew in pro- popularity during this time um as denim contributed to trend this offshoot of uh preppy also you know rec- uh, called the ivy league style developed a subtrend that soon became uh called americana so this is where that kind of americana preppy ivy league they all kind of intertwine during that time period um and and why those names kind of those lines get blurred um and the 1950s was also uh, part of the origin story of modern day sportswear evolving out of the preppy aesthetic. Um, the 1950s is when sports uniforms started coming mm-hmm. in for the first time and being worn on the street as casual wear. I mean, I don't think they would have ever realized that giant football jerseys would become, you know, like a huge sensation, but um the the rugby shirt came off the field during this time period and was starting to be worn and embraced by followers of the preppy and ivy aesthetic as just regular day clothes. Um, and I feel kind of like Charlie Sheen has forever damaged <laughs> <laughs> my personal view of the bowling shirt. Uh, but <laughs> what about Smash Mouth? I feel like they wore a lot of those. Oh, did they? Uh, do, wait, does Guy Fieri wear those? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, a lot of fl- a lot of flame shirts, but yeah, they're they're the bowling. Oh, it's too 1950s. bad. That used to be such a look in the '90s. Like cool people wore them, mm-hmm. and then yeah, so R.I.P. bowling shirts. Well, bowling shirts. So those became really, really big in the 1950s because there was this huge boom in the sports in the 50s and 60s, and then it evolved into kind of a fashion item at that time. Um, and then in the 1950s was also the time when Izod, mm. who had gotten the licensing agreement to sell and make Lacoste polo shirts, uh, which are technically tennis shirts by way of polo games in <laughs> India in the 19th century. I didn't want to go super deep into it. I do touch on it again. But um, it, so essentially, uh, in India, a lot of polo players wore something that was akin to the modern day polo shirt but it was actually really popularized as a tennis shirt because it was redesigned in 1929 by the french tennis champion a uh, champion rene lacoste oh yes you learn something I, new every day abs- and i there's actually just a giant history about um tennis clothes and tennis apparel and um you know it, it's really interesting but i you know obviously i couldn't go get, get all the way in there but um so in the 50, 50s, so this was introduced in 1929 in, in France, and it blew up. Um, and then it was introduced in the U.S. in the 50s. And when it was introduced, the U.S. market just like went bonkers. And it quickly turned uh, polo shirts into one of the most popular types of shirts in American and preppy style, as it was considered very comfortable, but also it was tailored so it's kind of able to blur those lines between formal and leisure wear. Mm-hmm. I love that word, leisure wear. <laughs> me too. Reminds me of leisure suits. It does. <laughs> um, and so then not until the 1972, when Ralph Lauren s- 
started to make his version of the tennis shirt and market it as a polo shirt. Mm-hmm. So bring it back around okay. and forever. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. He's like, well, let's just take this, you know. And so he forever memorialized it as a polo adjacent product again and built a cult-like following around the brand, furthering the already popular shirt. Wow. That's so yeah. interesting. I always had this feeling that calling them polo shirts was the uh, equivalent of calling tissues Kleenex, right? And so I started right. saying like a golf shirt, just like correcting myself because I was like, it seems like this is related to polo, the brands. So it's good to know that my my guess was right. Yeah, because it was Ralph Lauren really came out with the polo brand mm-hmm. because it was very it was very elitist. You know, you, you got to own a horse or be able to get to a location. You know, it's not it's not for everyone. Um, uh, but you know, it, it was not popularized by the the sport of polo really until like the like the tennis stars kind of turned it into their own thing, and then they started wearing. I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, back and forth on the history of it, but um, it kind of it kind of is both a polo a, a polo a tennis and a golf shirt, you know. But it's it's for anyone in any of those sports, they are able to wear it because it really was like it was leisure wear. <laughs> <laughs> You could be leisureful in them. Um, so it's also really important to note that during this time period and prior to segregation laws, that Black people were going to their own Ivy League universities. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, like Morehouse and Spellman, who we'll return to later on in this podcast for a different reason, um, and dressing in very similar preppy in American manners but were often written out of the scripts with images really lost through time because, you know, brands that were really memorializing the, um, the style ne- didn't use black models or refer to them at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, it just, <laughs> it, it wasn't, it w- wasn't considered something that you know, I really talked about when it came to um, Ivy style or Americana, you know, even though, they were embracing the trend and probably pulling it off in a way cooler way. Um, so um, there's this really, there's a new and a really, really highly acclaimed book everybody talks about. I think it came out, yeah, it came out in 20, 2021 and it's called Black Ivy. And it examines how Black civil rights leaders, jazzmen, artists, and writers rewrote the sartorial codes of this largely white elite style. The book's hypothesis looks at the fashionable exploits of revolutionary historical black male figures in the 1950s and 60s, and how they kind of encoded this new form of preppy and Americana into their wardrobe as a way to kind of, in theory, camouflage their radical thinking by dressing conservatively. Um, and the book's authors most notably call out Miles Davis and Malcolm X and James Baldwin, MLK, John Coltrane, and Sidney Poitier, claiming that the intentional subversion of this popular conservative and elite style was being utilized as a counterculture movement to be used to their own um, ends and their own agendas um, being benefited during a time when they were fighting for uh, racial equality and civil rights. Mm, um, that's so cool. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, I, it, it's interesting because I was reading a little bit about the Black Ivy book because it was just, when it came out, it actually was probably one of the more revolutionary theories about that time. And you do look back and 
man, they had some good style. And it, you're like, it really was. It, it, it had that look of very classic conservative preppy, but they were going out there and they were, they were doing things that were extremely revolutionary for the time, but dressing um, like, you know, <laughs> prep, prepsters um, and looking good. Looking very good. Just looking real good. I mean, it definitely would be very dis- disconcerting to the average white American at that point who's been told, or the, I don't know, has had their head filled with this idea of what black people look like yes. and dress like and act like and do. Uh, I I love it for that reason, you know, but I also, I, I don't know. I think that there's a little bit of like, you know, dressing into a mold that was created by white people. So it's complicated, mm-hmm. right? It's very complicated. It's very complicated. I had a friend whose husband worked at corporate for Ralph Lauren for years, like in the aughts. And it was interesting because he, you know, was in a pretty high level role and very talented, incredibly stylish, just like incredible taste kind of person. Uh, definitely no one could have done better in that job than him. But he would share the stories of the kind of like microaggressions he was dealing with on a daily basis as one of very few people working at Ralph Lauren corporate who weren't white and white and blonde, you know, it, to that extent where he would be like, yeah, all of my coworkers are blonde white women who grew up oh, really rich. And he goop. definitely com- didn't come from that oh. background either. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it was, I was like, yeah, I guess I, at that point I hadn't really thought that much about Ralph Lauren ever because growing up lower class like that's not a brand <laughs> that you really think about um so i i we're more you know i come from more of a u.s polo association background <laughs> yeah there you uh, go. thank you thank you yeah and so mm-hmm. uh i i never really thought about ralph loren that much and he his stories and just you know he would show me like the work that he was doing and you know their projects and all that stuff and it was eye-opening for me because I just, I didn't know that Ralph Lauren was at that point as luxurious as it was. And they seemed to have all the money in the world at that point. Um, they were creating all kinds of like expensive collabs and collections and buying up all the vintage preppy clothing and Americana clothing that they could find just to have it. Yes. Um, yes, of course. And just, I was like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. Everyone who works at Ralph Lauren would be white and blonde. <laughs> I just hadn't thought of it before. I mean, mm-hmm. re- you know, the reality is that, like, the fashion industry is predominantly white. I mean, you're a white person working within it. You almost don't see it after a while until yeah. someone points it out. But it, it seemed, like, particularly egregious at <laughs> Ralph Lauren at that point. Yes. And I'm actually going to get into Ralph Lauren Ooh. and their reparations. Oh, this. I can't wait. Um. This is a little bit later in the podcast. You got to put a pin in it. Put a pin um, in it. Oh, but meanwhile, actually, if we're going to, you know, divulge um, industry secrets, I did hear about at the time that um, their archives got infested by bed bugs. <gasps> Stop. You know, <laughs> I know. What do you, so there's awful. like, what do you even do? Because I know oh. that for. 20 years minimally, probably far longer, but specifically in the late 90s and the aughts, they were spending a lot of money. Oh, huge. They to build their archive. Massive archive. You know, that must have been, I, I don't, it's priceless. It has to have been a priceless collection I know, I of know. like uh, uh, clothing history. Yeah. Um, with obviously things that couldn't be washed. 
I, I have no, I don't no idea what they did, but wow. it was not good. And people were working there, and they would get bites on their <gasps> ankles. Stop! I'm serious. <laughs> that reminds me of bringing up Nasty Gal aughts. again. Mm-hmm. When our office, when we had to move. Wait, you only worked at Nasty Gal when we sat on the one end of the office, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we used to sit on the other end. Then they had to rent that space out to Farfetch because we were running out of money. And so we all moved up into the area where you knew us to work when you started. Remember, it was carpeted, right? Previously, the only people who had sat up there were like PR and marketing, and they had a ton of dogs. And the carpet was infested with fleas. And I don't know if it was still like this when you started, but like I would be sitting at my desk just being bitten by fleas all day long. Oh, gosh, Like, just no. covered, covered with flea bites, scabs. We kept talking to HR about it, and they were like, oh, you're imagining it. And everybody was like, no. Like, a that flea jumped nasty. up and bit me on the arm, you know? Like, yeah, it was so gross. Not Bed bugs are worse, though. Yeah. But I, I don't gross. know how they took care of it, but I'm, I'm sure that they did. I know. I, something, lots of poison of some just, sort being sprayed everywhere. Ugh. Just a lot of poison. Yeah. Um, you know... Why don't we end this episode before we go into the 80s? I think that's a great idea because there's, yeah, this seems like a good halfway point. Yeah. Let me, let me just add this little thing, this shameless plug. Do you mind? Yeah. Add a shameless plug. I have a little shameless plug to add. Okay. Um, so, you know, we're going to, we're, we're breaking up this episode into two parts. Um, but before we go, we added a tip jar. <laughs> that you can access on our Instagram profile link. So if you got a few dollars, like whatever you got, you know, and if you want, you don't have to, please throw them in the jar. And I'm just going to give a call out to those, those of you who actually donated. I, I was like in tears when I saw donations come in um, over the last week. And I just want to thank you so much. And you know who you are. Um, it means a lot. Uh, but also, n- no pressure. You do not need to tip. Um, anyway, but that's my my shameless plug. <laughs> but if you do, we would we would appreciate it. I mean, like we've got website hosting fees, you know, podcast hosting fees, recording fees, all the. F- there's so many fees. You like when I started Close Horse, I was like, oh, what could it cost to make a podcast? Five cents? No, <gasps> wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I thought it was just going to be like free, like me talking into like a Fisher mm-hmm. Price microphone tape recorder all day, <laughs> which I used to do a lot when I was a kid. Um, okay, well, we'll be back next week where we'll be getting started in the 1980s. See you all then. Bye. Thank you. Bye.